The Right Hook Podcast. With the Mitsubishi Commercial Range, Pajero Executive, Pajero Commercial, Outlander Business and new L200. All with a leading five-year commercial warranty. MitsubishiMotors.ie Hi there. George Hook here with The Right Hook on News Talk Tuesday's version. And if there are things you missed on the show, or indeed if you missed the show in its entirety, here are some of the highlights. Well, we're here in Cork, of course, in our uh, studios at Cork's Opera House. And uh, I was moved uh, the Queen's birthday. I put a picture up on Twitter and I congratulated the dear lady. And I was immediately greeted by a pile of abuse. And then when I mentioned it on the radio that night, uh, the abuse followed me once more. So I began to think just um, how friendly are we to our nearest neighbours. Well, my next guest thinks we're not very good and he sent me an email. I'm joined now by a British citizen living in Ireland, Liam Moss. Liam, welcome to the programme. Hello, George. Thank you. Well, there's no doubt you're British anyway after those six words. So you've established um, your your citizenry. Um, How long have you been in Ireland? Uh, I've been in Ireland for 10 years, George. Now, you have experienced a, a kind of negative part of the Irish, an Anglophobia as such, have you? Well, the first thing I'd like to start by saying, the Irish are remarkably, remarkably tolerant and remarkably, um, very, they've got very, very sort of good forward-thinking social views in comparison to many other countries and, and also probably even a little bit far, farther ahead in the British, for example, many things, but there are still there are still a few acceptable forms of uh, of discrimination. Mainly, mainly tends to be around English people, uh, and they've all had similar experiences. It turns out, you know, you know, nasty comments, things like that. But like the nasty comments amongst people, like that's that's common in every country. But the difference is with Anglophobia in Ireland is that there isn't an outrage from the other people who witness it. They might acknowledge personally that it's wrong if you speak to them one-on-one, but generally someone won't be thrown out of a pub for racism against an English person, in my experience. Or in the workplace, it might be seen as acceptable as well. There's also anglophobia in, in, in other senses. and like it's, it's hidden sometimes. I, can, I remember really clearly, when I first moved to Ireland, I loved, I loved everything Irish. I moved to Ireland because I was obsessed with the place. And, it was, and I still am a bit obsessed with the place. But just as different sort of events occurred, whether it be sport, politics, and it, they just, I felt more and more isolated. For example, when England came to Croke Park, it was a big deal, wasn't it? Enormous deal. Yeah, of course it was. But why, is it not, why was it not a big deal for, for Scotland to play in Croke Park or if Wales were to play in Croke Park or Australia? These are all countries who share the same history as England. Uh, yeah, but mm. I, I think you have to... I don't have an issue with that. I mean, um, we don't really worry too much about Britain per se. Uh, mm. It's the English. And therefore, Elizabeth II is very, invariably uh, spoken of as the Queen of England as yeah. opposed to being the the queen of of uh, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. She's always known as the Queen of England. Similarly, if England are playing Australia in cricket, the overwhelming proportion of Ireland is supporting Australia. Now, interestingly, I've always supported England at cricket. Uh, 
uh, then you get labelled. I mean, for Irish people, there's an anglophobia because there's this great throwaway phrase, you're a West. Brit. So when I put a picture of the Queen on my Twitter account and congratulate her on her birthday, I'm a West Brit. I have to say that I haven't experienced the kind of thing you're talking about. Now, I could only experience it at third hand because somebody would have to be abusing an English person for me to notice it. But I haven't noticed it. Well, it does. It happens. I mean, it does. Like most... I can't. It's different. It's such a difficult thing to talk about, George, because you can't quantify it. I can't come at you with facts. All I can come at you is with personal experiences, and, it, and this is only only a minority. I must say that I must say it is only a ver- minority. It's a. This is a very tolerable place for British people to live in general. But if you speak, if you speak to English people, they generally have the same experiences. It's the odd. It's the odd person. You know, it's the inappropriate comment in the workplace. So I was once told by. Um, an employer, not my current employer. I must say my current employer is exceptional. I was once told by a boss in a place I used to work, you know, that I had to tone down my accent because it might offend guests of uh, of the um, uh, of the company that I work for. There was an incident when I was just t- when I was in college in in Galway. I was just um, suddenly I was just set upon by an angry person who wanted to who wanted to for some reason verbally abuse me about the last 800 years. But what really shocked me was that the friends who I was with, my college friends, they didn't seem to think it was unacceptable what she was saying. Well, I think that is actually true. Um, There is, but we're remarkably poor at stepping into those kind of situations. I have to tell you, um, if it were a French person or anybody else was abused, the Irish wouldn't step in either. Uh, The Irish are very bad at standing up in these kind of situations. I mean, it, it reaches its most simple form in that they're not willing to complain about their dinner. But but strangely enough, the majority of the Irish population does not uh, confront uh, issues. And there's a sense which makes the English thing more than any, is there's a sense that the 800 years, the black and tans, all that kind of thing is an acceptable line of abuse. But what, what I would, what I get really confused about is that why the why do the Scot, Scottish people who shouldn't get it? But why would they be? Why are they generally excused from it? The Welsh are certainly excused from it, and the Welsh are very, very. I mean, the Welsh are probably the most unionist country in Britain. You know, and people often they often sort of they take they make anglophobia and anti sort of Britishness and anti sort of um, monarchist sort of sort of statements based on sort of. They think it's acceptable by linking it to imperialism. And that's why I brought up Australia, New Zealand, uh, New Zealand, Canada. These countries were all founded by imperialists, colonialists. If you think about it, and if you have thought about this an awful lot, English people are actually the ones who stayed at home and didn't colonize. It's the ancestors of you know, some of the gentry in Ireland. You look at Australia, New Zealand. I just, it's always, but it always comes back to the English. It's always the English that tends yeah. to get the blame. And I just, and I think the, the Croke Park thing got me. Although it was fantastic what happened at Croke Park, the respect to God save the Queen. But it shouldn't have been an issue. For those young men, those young, I mean, those rugby players. Although I do, I do understand what happened at Croke Park and why it was significant. No, but you can't actually, yeah. you can't actually forget what happened at Croke Park. No, of like, course not. It's course quite not, interesting. But, but there are people who still, they still use that 
as an excuse to be rude to English people. I mean, a lot of stuff I might say might sound generic, but I'm speaking out and a lot of English people will be way too frightened to speak out. And I was very nervous about speaking out because sometimes, sometimes it is intolerable the way people behave. Now, there's a lady, a lady I know who lives locally. She has a son who went to school, who goes to school locally. Now, her son was, her son was bullied to the point of attempted suicide because he was from England. Now, these kids in that school... How on earth did such young kids get ingrained in them an intolerance of English people that they could have bullied this kid to the point where he was, where he attempted suicide? Now, unfortunately, they were offered the opportunity to go to the press, that family, but they couldn't because she happens to have a son who's in the British Army, remarkably. It, it sounds like a very negative interview, but I, I just want to change the way that our relationship is. I think English, Anglo-Irish relations are really fantastic in England. The English, they love the Irish. I love the Irish. That's why I came here. I still do. We have so, many, so much more in common with the United Kingdom than we do with America, right? However, you know, we've got more British tourists come to this island than we do Americans. Yet outside hotels, you have American flags alongside the tricolor. I'd love to see the English or the British flag alongside the tricolor. I'd love it. You know, these are, it's just the little, these little things. And you ask yourself, why would you not put a Union Jack outside of a hotel in Waterford or Cork? And you think about it and think about what might happen if you did do that. Yeah. Like the reaction of people when that British journalist mistook Conor McGregor for being a, uh, you know, for being a UK fighter you know, or a UK in Ireland or Jack Grealish uh, deciding to, you know, to uh, represent England instead of Ireland in the soccer. It's, you know, the, all, the, all the tweets that come in, they say F the English, F the Brits, F, they use awful language. If you actually replace the word British or English with the word black or Asian or, or Muslim or, or, you know, you might, or you pick someone's religion, you'd, be, you know, you'd never be able to access your Twitter account again because you'd get just torrents of abuse. All right. Uh, you've raised a lot of points, Liam, and thank you so much, uh, particularly for the courage. I, I don't underestimate the courage uh, in coming on uh, the program to say what you've said. Uh, I'm sure it's going to create a reaction. I think part of it, I have to say, is I don't think we've grown up. I don't think we've grown up to have a, like a mature relationship with our biggest trading partner, our nearest neighbour, uh, and the country where probably... Uh, most of us live. There are probably more Irish living um, in England than there are on this island. It has been very difficult, George, talking about this because I'm talking on behalf of lots of English people who have been in, who have experienced nastiness. There is not an option for us just to go home. We we love it here. We love the people here. We've got family. We've got Irish family, Irish friends. We just want to change the relationship between England and Ireland in this country. We're we're not here to take over. We're not here to cause him. We we are here. We want we want we want to be friends. We want to be family, and uh, you know we want to be part of the society. And we want our traditions and our we want our flags and the things that make us. That, you know, we want we we want Englishness to be respected and given just as much respect as, as say, the Polish citizens or the Lithuanian citizens or the American citizens. It's time it's time for the relationship to change and for the country to grow to grow up and reach out to its neighbours. Thank you so much. Okay. Thanks, Thanks so Liam. Much, George. Well done. Thank you. Bye bye. The right hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander seven seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. The Housing Agency is hosting their annual conference today. 
on the day when Peter McVeary told News Talk Breakfast that the housing crisis had reached the end of the line. He called on Taoiseach to describe it as a national emergency. Well, Conor Skeen is the chairperson of the housing agency and joins me now. Conor, welcome to the programme. Thank you very much. Uh, did your conference have any answers? The housing agency are trying to draw everyone's attention to the fact that there is no single answer, and as you rightly say, answers plural is the correct approach. So today we were trying to get everyone to focus on the issue of affordability, that notwithstanding the uh, huge trauma for those 5,000 families who find themselves in emergency accommodation, we must look to the future, uh, and that future is going to come at us very quickly when we're going to start building normally again. And the one thing that we have got to do this time is make sure that when we do start to supply housing, it's affordable, and that we don't drive people back into debt again. All right, well, I'm going to come to affordability in a minute, which is a key to this. Um, but, but the housing agency, for those of us who aren't uh, experts in housing, what does the agency do? Thanks for asking, because what the housing agency, we've been in existence for about three years now, and what we're there to do is to support and advise government across all aspects of uh, the delivery of housing, social housing, market housing, and everything to do with housing. So uh, we're the people who try to draw their attention to things that they need to hear. Yeah, I'm glad you said we tried to do it. I mean, we've got we've got a financial organisation which is to advise the government on, on budgetary policy. They don't pay any attention to them, so maybe they don't pay any attention to you. Am I correct in saying, though, the issue of affordability, it, it kind of goes against the first law of economics, the law of supply and demand, where price is, is affected by those two things, supply and demand. So to, to try and, and get an affordable house at a time when the price might be different is surely you're, you're trying to roll back the tide. Now, Mr. Hook, there are more than two laws to economics, and supply and demand are certainly two of them. But the others uh, include the fact that uh, unregulated markets will not deliver public good. And uh, what we're in the business of trying to do is to understand what it is is causing Irish housing to be so expensive already, uh, even before the housing supply starts to resume, and seeing what can be done to address that. Yeah, I, I mean... We heard that Irish concrete is 30% more expensive than other concrete in Europe. We heard that uh, Irish labour rates for skilled labourers on site are three times higher than the equivalent elsewhere in Europe. So we're beginning to make progress in at least initially identifying okay. where the sources of cost are. Well, I, I presume when you address me as Mr. Hook, you sort of <laughs> saw me as some right-wing econo- economist, <laughs> which I, I reject. Forgive me, forgive me. Yeah, but is it true that a third of the population of Ireland will need to get some level of state support in order to afford to buy a rental home? Well, that that's... Uh, critical is the word some level of support yes and what we're trying to do in the agency is get a whole lot of people to face up to facts there's nothing wrong with that but it's a it's a reality that we need to deal with which is about a third of our population are always going to need some level of support at some stage in their life for housing and until and unless we get our heads around those realities we're going to continue to make the mistakes okay you may want to address me as mr hook again <laughs> uh, i mean doesn't isn't there something wrong with a modern First world economy, which we are, where one third of the population can't buy it or or rent uh, a house of, of their own means and volition. Well, you know. 
sometimes you need to see the alternative to understand how well off you are and go off down to some of the states of the United States where 25-30% of the population live in trailer homes to see the alternative. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I'm still rejecting your picture of me as a right-wing economist. <laughs> um, but let's get back to what seems to be uh, an issue which which I and a whole and Peter McVary and many others are ad idem. How do you have a housing and more importantly, really a homeless crisis when you only have to walk, drive, or bus your way around the capital city anyway to see houses that are empty? Yeah. How does that happen? And what do you propose to? to government to do about it? Well, the first thing we do is we draw attention to it. Now, a lot of people are saying it in a sort of a uh, telling stories way. We're putting facts on it. So we brought a report out last week where we drew attention to the fact that uh, we have 230,000 vacant houses, homes and apartments in Ireland. And we put it in context for people. We told people that Ireland has 2 million homes, houses. Uh, Britain has 23 million. And we have more vacancies than they do. Yes, uh, they have no, but they have around. no, but they do. You see, for instance, people keep talking about Manchester and Ireland in relation to the HSE. For instance, I can't understand why Manchester is bigger than Ireland in population. But but the the thing about Manchester is it's a conurbation. Ireland isn't a conurbation, and so it does have different problems. Now, the the median price for residential property in Dublin in 2015 was €280,000, give or take uh, €200,000 sterling, say. Now, that doesn't sound out of kilter for what you might pay. Well, I mean, it, 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 it's cheaper than what you might pay in London or Manchester, perhaps. Isn't that so? So why do we think in, we are out of kilter? Well, as I said, I, I instanced, because you had raised the issue vacancy, uh, by showing that we have identified, for instance, that as being one of the things that we can work on in the short to medium term, that when you realize that there's that amount of capacity sitting in the market, it's something that we can readily address and readily start to bring back into use. The reality is that there's no such thing as a quick fix in terms of building new houses, but there mm. certainly is low-hanging fruit in terms of available stock that already has a roof and a wall and doors and uh, but why is it empty and what we're trying to do is draw attention to the need to focus right. on that but why is it empty why is this house you know instead that the, the, the large number of houses why why is a house why is it empty like I mean somebody must own it yeah. and therefore somebody must either um, want to sell it but they're not selling it because they think it's a better price six months down the road, or they won't rent it because they're they're terrified that somebody that you know the the Alan Kelly fix that somehow their the rent is going to be fixed forevermore and they're not going to be able to make a profit. Well, it turns out that like everything else in housing, there's no single reason why yeah. something is is vacant, and our experience from our colleagues in Britain suggests that it's so complex, in fact, that a lot of their work is just trying to identify what particular mix, because it's usually a mix of reasons applies to almost every property. So what we're doing as a fix is we're saying to the government that we need to partner up with the local authorities who have expert local knowledge. Okay. First of all, identify where they are and then which particular 
or brew of reasons applies and what we can do to incentivize, ideally incentivize and tempt people to bring these back into use either for sale or for rent and if none of that works we can probably copy the Americans or the French or the Spanish and penalize people but we in the agency find that everything to do with housing is so incredibly emotional that you're far better off using honey and carrots. Uh, Yeah because uh, on on the front page of my Irish Independent derelict houses are going to be seized by the state. (laughs) Now Mr. Hook, your friendly right-wing economist, owns this derelict house, right? And Conor Skian, who is a latter-day Vladimir Putin, it descends upon and takes my house. Now, you're absolutely infringing my rights, like. You're darn right, and we're not going to disagree on that particular point at all. Uh, And that's what we've learned in Ireland, is that you're far better off trying to deal with Mm. uh, people with incentives. Uh, We saw, uh, for instance, about I don't know, two months ago now when the ESRI came out and, and made an ill-advised statement that we needed to get older people out of larger houses. We saw the kind of slap that they got. Yeah. So we've learned from that. And we've learned from things like the poll tax and bedroom tax in Britain as well that, uh, you know, that, that, that is not the way to do business with people. You've got to give people incentives. Okay, but, but nevertheless, Peter McVary this morning, I wouldn't argue at all. It, it's not a crisis or anything. This is an emergency. The, the numbers are just staggering for what a country that sees itself as a first world economy in terms of children and parents and, and uh, so on. So, so therefore, there doesn't seem, maybe Simon Coveney is going to be the white knight that saves it, but we haven't seen, uh, 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 like you talk about a number of answers, we haven't seen a coordinated answer to this. The problem I know, seems to be getting... I know, I know. In fairness, we were up Mr. in front of the, the homes and uh, the housing and homes uh, committee, uh, whatever it is, three weeks ago now, and we gave them a very comprehensive suite of uh, integrated solutions. One of the problems, you know, the old joke that the man who has a hammer thinks that everything he sees is a nail, right? We're still trapped in the vice-like grip of the building sector who thinks the solution to housing is building more houses. It's certainly part of the solution, but the reason we're talking about affordability today, the reason that we were talking about vacancies last week, is that a huge part of the answer lies in management. And management is a less glamorous but far more effective okay. and long-lasting But uh, there is another issue, surely, is that there are a huge number of people listening to the programme who still will be in negative equity, yeah. who would still be paying mortgage which essentially you can't afford. Absolutely. Part of the homeless crisis is that people are may well you know, have mortgages they can't afford. Yes. If we weren't afflicted, which I think you have to be careful using the word unique, but which appears to be a uniquely Irish disease of wanting to buy a home. If many of these people did not buy a home but simply rented, they wouldn't be in the position they find themselves. Well, no, it's funny you should mention that. Mr. Hook. <laughs> Dr. Hook, Monsignor <laughs> Hook, <laughs> Professor Hook. All right. Uh, the... Uh, and a lot of people are astonished to realise that we are not the John B. Keane caricatures that, we, that many people assume. Irish home ownership peaked 25 years ago in 1991 and has fallen every year through three booms and four recessions ever since. Flatline. We're becoming much more like a typical European country in terms of the ratio of owners to renters. And in fact, in the Dublin area, over 50% now rent. All right. Well, go back to the question that I posed. That one in three uh, people in the population may need some level of state support to buy or rent a house. 
Yeah. Why don't we just give them that? Why don't we just decide that we're, we're out of kilter, we're heading in the wrong direction, and therefore what, what we want is we want government intervention because what we have is a national emergency. For instance, uh, rent supplement bears no relationship whatsoever with rent. So therefore, why don't we simply make rent supplement at the level of rent so somebody can now rent a house? Well, because we heard, for instance, at the conference today, Ireland's absolute tippy-top expert on everything to do with social housing saying that if we start to increase the rent supplement, the evidence from all over the world, it was just a big study finished in Australia, suggests any increase will go straight into the pockets of landlords and it will just increase the rents and that will have the unintended effect of harming people who are just barely able to manage to rent by increasing the rents for them and drive... I the d- like, I'm not tippy-top and expert and whiz no, I, I don't agree yep. with her. Like, oh. Well, let me tell you why I don't agree with her. Because the reason many people can't afford to rent a home and or indeed buy a home is that there are homes for rent and to buy at the moment and there's a queue of people outside the door who are willing to pay the going rate of rent or mortgage. But then there's another queue of people who don't bother queuing up because they can't afford the rent well, now, or the mortgage. This goes back to your earlier point where you started to mention the arrears and we went off on a side tangent. One of the big problems in Ireland is that the arrears and all the people who are in those are creating a huge amount of stickiness in the market. And we have a dramatically smaller number of houses for sale or indeed for rent than we should have. And that's largely caused by those arrears. People who are trapped and don't want to realise negative equity or get themselves in trouble, into deeper trouble. So we have to understand in housing that you have to address all of the issues at the same time because the lack of houses that are, uh, should be part of the normal supply is what's creating, it's one of the things right. contributing to increasing prices because of the fact there are so few of them out there. All right, I don't have any houses to rent. So, <laughs> But let me say this, though, that if um, what we have done is we have essentially made the modern-day landlord in 2016 uh, uh, and we have uh, pilloried him and caricatured him as the fellow who was evicting people during the famine. And there's nothing wrong with being a landlord. Landlord. Not Surely, a landlord. We need more landlords. We need a lot more landlords. Well, why don't you make it and protect them? Well, why don't you make it attractive to be a landlord? But that's exactly the advice we're giving the government. We said to the government that the top three priorities that we need to address uh, don't include building. The first priority is dealing with arrears. The second uh, priority is to deal with vacancies, and the third priority is to fix the rental sector so that it's more attractive for everybody, for tenants and for landlords. Um. This is not a fix that is likely to happen quickly. So what happens next month when the figures come out and there are more people? Like the increase is roughly, it's almost double year on year. Like what happens next month when there's another uh, 60, 70, 80 families put on the street? Well, if we're doing nothing, we should all be affected out of our jobs, frankly. The reality has got to be that we are addressing a whole series of things all at the same time. So, for instance, uh, the agency are advising the government that it's still cheaper to buy housing than it is to build it. So we as an agency are going around seeing what we can do to facilitate, manage and broker uh, buying housing stock off financial institutions and anybody else who's, who, who has them. And we're buying them in bulk for them on behalf of them and, and diverting them then into local authorities 
and to approved housing bodies. So that's a for instance. So in the very short term, acquire existing stock and bring existing derelict stock back into use. We can start doing that within days, within days. And then the other part... And you could increase the rent supplement overnight and you could uh, retrospectively change Alan Kelly's extraordinarily stupid plan uh, to to, uh, uh, lock rents for two years and therefore make it totally uneconomic for landlords to rent. As I said, you know, all we can do is take the best advice we have. And Michelle Norris of UCD is, she's such an expert that she is actually the chair of our housing finance agency as well. Uh, for, you know, so all we can do is take the, yeah. the best Were you not we listening to all the experts who told us we were going to have a soft landing under Bertie Ahern, no? Dr. George Monsignor Hook, I was the person who was completely pillared for saying that uh, we were going to have a catastrophic uh, landing and that we'd lose 60% of our property value. And uh, I said it on two television programs and was laughed out of it. Laughed out of it for saying it. All right. Well, I wish you well. Thank you so much for joining me. Conor Skeen, chairperson of the Housing Agency. Your thoughts to 53106, cost 30 cents. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie the uh, Bill Cosby arrived back in court for a, a hearing today in his criminal sex assault case. I'm on my way to California to talk to Leslie Marshall, uh, California-based talk show host. Leslie, welcome to the program. Oh, good to be back, George. I got excited. I thought you were really coming to California. Like, we could go and have cocktails together. Yeah, I, I must do that. I must find a reason <laughs> for going, probably to, for a celebration drink when Donald Trump is president. But <laughs> let's talk Cosby. Um, the reason he's in court, despite trying a lot of finagling, is that this particular case did not exceed the statute of limitations. Now, is is that the first and most key thing about this case? Yes, absolutely, because as you know, there have been other women that have come come forward before, um, but because of the the years that have gone by, and depending on the state where the alleged incident occurs, the statute of limitations can vary throughout the 50 states within the U.S. So this particular case is still within the statute of limitations, so charges can be brought against an individual if it's within that statute of time. Yes, but the... the, the, um the person who was making the allegations, uh, Andrea Constand, is now in Canada. Do we know if she's actually going to face him in court or is she going to present a deposition? Well, quite frankly, a lot of times the uh, attorneys or the judge will allow a witness in a case of rape um, certainly if somebody is underage or was underage at the time of the assault, um, to do a taped uh, testimony, or if there are geographical uh, situations such as she's out of the country and she's in Canada. Um, that hasn't been determined yet. That would be agreed upon by her attorneys um, 
and uh, by the defense and the judge. I haven't heard if that's going to happen, but that okay. is entirely possible. It is permissible often. All right. But it, it, what I don't understand is in 2005, this woman signed a confidentiality agreement. Whatever we might think about it, she signed it with Cosby. I'm presuming she got money. Um, but, but now, having signed this agreement, she then turns around and actually makes it public. Isn't, isn't there an issue with this? I mean, for anybody, what's the point of signing a confidentiality agreement and paying for it if somebody is then going to break it 10 years later because it suits them? Well, you know, the U.S. is very litigious, and one of the things that I always say is most, unfortunately, contracts and agreements aren't worth the paper uh, they're written on. Um, So, honestly, it's terrible, but almost anything, whether it's a prenup, a confidentiality agreement, a, you know, I won't work across the street from your radio station, uh, pretty much, it doesn't mean you'll win, but you can fight them. All right, but Cosby... um What's America? What does America think about this? I mean, is Cosby guilty and now trying to by by public opinion or not? It would seem that in the court of public opinion, they think he's guilty because of the number of women that have come forward. It's not this is not one woman. Um, there are multiple women um, whose whose stories, and it's also understandable, especially for those of us here in California and Hollywood that know the power of a celebrity. Um, you know, if you if you go in to your boss and, you know, you say somebody who's a big-name celebrity did something, they're probably going to recommend you keep your mouth shut because that person's a big name, that person can afford big-gun lawyers, and that person brings in the studios and a lot of people, advertisers, a lot of money. But what I don't understand is... I understand, as happens in a lot of these cases, the so-called, the alleged perpetrator holds up a constant defense of deny, deny, deny. What astonishes me is that Cosby has admitted uh, certain uh, things that make him very dodgy, like he admits to have obtaining sedatives to give to girls before he has sex with them. Like, he seems to have made some extraordinarily damaging admissions. Oh, absolutely. Here, here's the thing, because um, I interviewed like a psychologist on my radio show about this, and you know there are different mindsets of, of varying levels of predators. Um, if, in fact, Bill Cosby is guilty, and I personally, in the court of public opinion, agree with the masses here that he is. Um, th- there's a mindset that, well, she came to my room willingly, she knew what was going to happen, we were drinking, I was just trying to loose her up a little bit, or she didn't object to what I put in her drink, but she didn't know what you put in her drink, or she consented. But how can you be consented if you're all looped up on, you know, a sedative or you're passed out? Um, so, you know, in, in his mind, and his wife is obviously supporting him, but in his mind, he, I, I think, he, you know, if you tell yourself a lie enough, you believe it is the truth. I, I, do, I do believe that he does not think that he is a rapist um, or a predator. But- and that's a problem because he, he repeatedly did the same thing. It's the same M.O. It's the, it's yes. the same scenario with all but, these women. Uh, I, I certainly am defending Cosby, but but uh, what over in Britain, for instance, Cliff Richard, who's a bit of an iconic figure, um, is now, uh, you know, in again in the court of public opinion, uh, without any evidence, is seen perhaps to be a predator long after they died, uh, like former prime ministers of Britain were were, were 
vilified as predators after they died. So the the situation here with Cosby is he is actually guilty by the media before the case takes place. Yeah, yes. And you know what's weird? You know, we have a politician named Dennis Hastert who is guilty, and he's guilty of molesting kids when he was a coach at a school, and it's almost like, you know, people are like, well, you know, give him, you know, give him a break. That was a long time ago. So honestly, the court of public opinion is not consistent, at least when it comes to people who have fingers pointed at them and charges against them of uh, being predators. Cosby was um, a particular kind of uh, television performer, though, because he, he, the Cosby Show was kind of a happy family show and all that sort of thing. And there's generations of Americans who were have grown up on it, maybe even you. So, like, is that now, is that experience now completely tainted for Americans? I don't think the experience is tainted. I don't think people believed the first allegation and that woman, and the reason is because of that. I think that they, a lot of times, Americans, because TV is a lot, uh, a big part of our uh, society, and, you know, TV is unfortunately a big, you know, part of our life. We watch far too much of it. Um, but that show, you know, when he was, you know, Dr. Huxtable and he's married to the wife and it broke barriers in so many ways because they were an African American family where the parents were upper middle class educated professionals and it was funny. It was lighthearted. And I think a lot of times Americans confuse Bill Cosby, who's funny with the, you know, the darndest things kids say, uh, the stand-up comedy, the Huxtable, and then on top of it, the loving, you know, smiley, kooky, gooey guy on the pudding commercial, that they confuse the character that he put out in the public with the man, and how could this guy, the character that we love, you know, have done this? But when more and more allegations came forward, then people say, oh, yeah, there's a public life and there's a private life. In terms of the rest of the cast, have we have we sort of seen support for him, which we saw in the, in the case over here in certain uh, stars who were in this accused position from soap opera, uh, cast came out and supported them. Did, did we Have we seen that in the case of Cosby? <clears throat> yes, there have been a couple of cast members um, and uh, the youngest female cast member, uh, you know, I believe, uh, supported him and, um, you know, came out and she's been on TV and has spoken about it. Other than that, there's, there's, there's been, you know, silence. And, and I think, um, you know, perhaps because they don't know and they really can't comment, especially when one's a woman. I mean, for a woman, uh, a woman who's a celebrity in the public eye to question other women's accusations, well, that doesn't necessarily um, help you in your career, perhaps, um, in, in, you know, in the eyes of the industry. All right. But it, it, there are contradictions, though, um, where you, you have Cosby here, then you, you have uh, the, the film director who skips the country and uh, goes to Britain. Um, and the, the, the situation in America, if Woody Allen, only last week, his, his, his uh, adopted son wrote a scathing 
amazing uh, uh, article about Woody Allen who was in Cannes. Like, Allen seems to have, I don't know, but he seems to have skated through the most extraordinary allegations uh, without affecting his career in the slightest. Ultimately, he might have made some bad movies, but it had nothing to do with the allegations made against him. So there seem to be massive contradictions here. Well, well, these are very different situations. First of all, Woody Allen um, married his adopted daughter, which is creepy and gross, I think, to many of us. Um, but she, you know, they're still married and they have a child, and you know, she has not brought up, you know, any type of uh, charge. Um, it's his ex Mia Farrow who says that he molested uh, their daughter, and the the daughter said it happened. But there, again, there there was really. Uh, no big day in court except for the fact that he was limited to and prevented from eventually seeing that child. And that child now is over 18 and adult, so can make that decision on her own as to whether she wants contact with him. Um, but, you know, you have to remember there's a difference between custody agreements, criminal charges, um, you know, civil punitive damage and charges in the United States. So there are various types of uh, suits, for example, with Cosby, you know, there there are people that had, like you said, settlements. And right, now, just, they take their checks. just this thing about sedatives, because you were making the point that Cosby has sort of talked about it so much he's begun to believe his own spin, as it were. But but there has been, started in America and everywhere else as well, there has been this thing about that, you know, you can make sex better if you take a pill or, or whatever. Like, they, the kind of mechanisms have changed. Once upon a time, it was a boy-girl activity. Now you they've created a whole sort of pharmaceutical role in it. <laughs> yeah, there's blue pills for Viagra, and I understand there's some pink pills for women that are having problems. I fortunately so I'm, know I'm not trying to... Uh, yeah, but I mean, Cosby may, Cosby's defense really seems to come around, well, you know, it, it just sort of helped everything run along. It was... These pills were just sort of the equivalent of three gin tonics. Yeah, but see, here's a problem, and there are a couple of problems. One, in the United States, rape is very clear. When a woman says, or man says no, no means no. If they did not consent, it is rape. One. Two, if you, and especially because drugs have changed, there are what's known as rape drugs. There are things like ecstasy. There are things people have, uh, you know, they can, roofies, whatever, that they can uh, drug an individual with. You could be, a woman could be at a bar sitting there and turn around and talk to somebody. If somebody puts something in her drink, we've seen uh, women murdered, uh, you know, uh, with that. There are drugs out there that paralyze you, and you are awake inside and aware so you're watching what happens, but you're physically powerless to stop the predator uh, from doing what he wants uh, with your body, and that could include uh, rape, torture, even death. Um, so there, there are different elements here, which is, you know, this person's also claiming, I did not take that um, willfully. Um, right. I did not take that drug willfully. And then there's another element, which is, is that drug legal, and how was that drug obtained? Okay, well, we'll wait and see. Face is probably 10 years, so uh, we'll wait and see. Leslie, thank you so much uh, uh, to uh, um, uh, talking to me, but more importantly, I take you up on your offer for a champagne dinner to celebrate the election of President Trump. To, to celebrate President Clinton? I will. I will be doing that with you, yes. <laughs> thank you so much, Leslie Marshall, uh, talk show host. Uh, 
in California. And uh, the a lot of reaction going on and on and on to 53106 on what looked like when we started a fairly simple item of an Englishman, Liam, living in Ireland for quite a long time about the abuse he gets just because of his accent. Uh, George, I'm a dope living in Cork and have to listen to the continual anti-dub uh, nonsense. He's in... Uh, Douglas. Uh, it's called slagging, apparently, he says. Um, take it with a thick skin. Yeah, I agree, but I think we do it differently uh, with the British. And then we were also talking about the homeless and the issue of how are we going to get properties to rent, particularly when it's difficult for landlords. And uh, how are they going to attract more landlords when rents are taxed between 50 and 60%? Uh, and and you're right. Um, rents are viewed in entirely in almost like income, as in your wages. And I think there's no way that ultimately you're going to buy a house and rent it. On Anglophobia again. I lived in London, listener says, for several years, and in the most part enjoyed the generous hospitality. However, occasionally got verbal abuse because I'm Irish. Um, it does happen. There's no question or doubt about it. Uh, the the uh, the British. Uh, it's 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 a, a different thing in Britain, though. I don't honestly. I don't believe it's abuse. I I think they just have a natural sort of superiority complex where all former colonials are concerned, and we, on the other hand, have the same sort of inferiority complex that old colonials have. Uh, towards their colonist. A lot more to come on a right hook with me, George Hook, from Cork, a gloriously sunny Cork, and we're in the Opera House. The Right Hook with the new Mitsubishi Outlander 7-seater automatic with sporty paddle shifters for super smooth gear changes at your fingertips. MitsubishiMotors.ie well, we're at the Opera House in Cork broadcasting today, and the news has broken, of course, that Hillary Clinton, um, the only thing she has in common now with Bernie Sanders is that neither of them want to grant Norwegian Air International a permit that would enable them to fly from Cork Airport to the U.S., I'm joined in the studio here by the Managing Director at Cork Airport, Neil McCarthy. Neil, welcome to the programme. Good afternoon, George. Now, I'm obviously not an aviation expert, but I've read a lot about open skies. Now, the first thing is there are open skies between Europe and the USA, isn't that right? Absolutely, yeah. The EU and the US have concluded an agreement that governs the rules in which airlines can travel between the European Union and the US. Uh, and Norwegian satisfies all those rules. So there are regulatory rules, there are financial rules, um, and there are safeguards in place to ensure that only legitimate uh, and reputable airlines can fly between, between anywhere in the EU and the US. And Norwegian satisfies all of those. But the issue is that Norwegian is a low-cost carrier. And the, the um, airways between uh, the US and the EU are dominated by what are called legacy carriers. Uh, and so we would say, and we're, we're going to be Ireland's newest transatlantic airport, that there is an absence of competition, uh, that it's uh, dominated by high fares, 
uh, and an absence of choice. And so we've con- we've signed a contract with Norwegian Air to start a Cork Boston route as soon as they, they get the license. They take all the boxes, they satisfy all of the legislative okay. and environmental criteria. It, I, I mean, it's hard to say there's no competition. I mean, putting Cork aside for the moment, if we take Ireland, yeah. it's hard to say there's no competition when if you go out to Dublin Airport, you have US Airways, American Airways, Delta, Aer Lingus, uh, Uncle Tom, you know, you now have Ethiopian Airways, um, you have Uncle Tom Cobbley and all. Now, the issue with low fares, obviously, is a matter of opinion, but uh, it's never been cheaper to fly the Atlantic. But but that's not actually the issue. The big problem is that everybody in Cork is uh, driving either an hour and a half to Shannon or driving three hours to Dublin. To, to go to America. Well, let me take you back to the point. Uh, there are approximately two low fares operators on the transatlantic corridor. Uh, there's Wauer operating via yeah. Reykjavik in Iceland and there's WestJet operating largely into Canada. Uh, the rest are full service operators. Um, the uh, Norwegian operate a low cost model similar to Ryanair. In a, yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting the Americans are cribbing because the Americans invented low-cost airlines. Absolutely. And they were called, I remember well, they were called peanut airlines because the only thing you got was a, a soft drink and a packet of peanuts as opposed to, you know, expecting to get this morning's Irish Times and, you know, a bottle of champagne and so on. So I get that. Um this is, you're really, Cork and Norwegian, in a sense, are caught in the fact there's an American presidential election, I would have thought, Absolutely. more than aviation policy. Absolutely. Um, Norwegian Air, are, they're a low-cost operator, they're similar to Ryanair. The issue is really around union recognition. And so all of the existing carriers on the transatlantic, all of them, are all highly unionised. And so the common denominator in all of the objectors are it's led by the labor unions, but behind it are the legacy carriers. So you can log on to the U.S. Department of Transportation website and see who the objectors are. There is one common denominator. They're either running a legacy airline with high fares or they're a labor union. And they don't want a low cost operator that doesn't largely uh, recognize trade unions on that. They've seen what has happened in Europe when Ryanair has come on board and Ryanair has brought down fares and has changed the business model in Europe. Uh, the transatlantic corridor is the last protected high fares, uh, highly regulated and highly unionized yeah, corridor. It's interesting because like you're a career uh, aviation man, That's albeit correct. on the ground, initially at Dublin Airport and now at Cork Airport for the last five years. But um, it's interesting that O'Leary, who has grown this extraordinary airline with monumental profits just announced, has in fact never gone across the Atlantic. And in fact, the latest thing we're reading is he's suggesting it would feed into the old enemy, uh, Aer Lingus. So what does O'Leary know that Norwegian don't know? Uh, I would have it that Norwegian and O'Leary know the same thing. They know there's going to be resistance to a low-cost operator. And what's very interesting, if you log on to the Department of Transport website, uh, Ryanair are one of the supporters of Norwegian's licence. They're formally on the docket. Uh, And also Ryanair have recently signed a letter to the Friends of Ireland Caucus in the US, one of a number of signatories, including Michael Cawley from Falch Ireland, uh, Michael O'Leary, Eamon Brennan from the IA ourselves, where we're calling upon the Friends of Ireland in the US to let this license prevail and let it through. 
The um, the thing about travelling across the Atlantic, although it's quite interesting that we in Ireland would sort of look at six hours to Boston and think, you know, I'll never get to Boston with no legroom on the plane and I won't get my dinner, I'll never make it. It's quite interesting that Americans would have been doing that for decades, except they're just going from east to west coast. But east to west coast is a longer trip exactly. than, than Cork to Boston. And people are quite happy to exist and die the peanuts. So the low-cost thing, um, you can like people just buy pizza and bring it on board or something. And that's what they do. Absolutely. The, the American market is interesting. Uh, there are low-cost operators operating domestically in America, like Southwest that you referred to earlier. But American legislation precludes foreign airlines from, from traveling domestically in the States and servicing those routes. But what we're looking for here is we're looking for an international low-cost carrier to service the transatlantic. And the labor unions are crying foul out. It's an election year. You're quite right. First of all, Bernie... I mean, this is the only thing that Sanders and Clinton agree on. Absolutely. Uh, Sanders, as you know, is to the left of the Democratic Party. He's, he's appealing to a particular blue-collar co- constituency and uh, in a hotly contested um, contest for the Democratic nomination, Hillary is now trying to grab that. And so the danger is this: uh, the, I, the EU and the US agree a methodology by which new airlines get on the route, and that methodology is the US-EU uh, Open Skies Agreement. Norwegian satisfies that, but for political expediency, it could get blocked. Well, I, I, that's the real question, because whether you like Norwegian or not, and they would wouldn't be my chosen carrier if I was going to America, but it'd be somebody else's, and lots of people would choose them. Um, the point about it is the open skies policy. I don't understand how somebody in America can wave a big stick at Cork Airport, given the open skies policy. How do they? How do they turn that legislation on its head? Well, that's where it gets really interesting. So the the license was tentatively awarded. There was an appeal process opened. The appeal essentially closed yesterday and everybody's waiting on the outcome of that. But what four congressmen have said is that irrespective of the outcome of the appeal, and that's how we all agree it should be determined, they're going to bring forth legislation to block it anyway. And what that's doing is that's casting aside an international agreement between the EU and the US and saying that we're no longer going to honour that, which is a unilateral breach. But I don't know who those four congressmen are, but you can bet your bottom dollar uh, they're hand in glove with labour unions or airlines because the American political system is based on lobbying. Yeah, there will be strong lobbies uh, on those four congressmen. Absolutely. They're, the uh, labour unions, and particularly the pilots' unions, are strong contributors to both parties, as we said. Um, it's Peter DeFazio, who's a Democrat. It's Frank LeBeyond, who's a Republican. Rick Larson, a Democrat. And Lynn Westmoreland, who's a Republican. So it's a bipartisan bill. It's across parties. Four of them have introduced it. And what they're doing in election years, they're saying, let's protect American jobs. But let's protect American jobs when you have a treaty that says this free and fair and open competition is not a legal ground. Uh, And so that's why the EU is keeping a very close eye on this. And we have Deirdre Clune as an MEP here in the region. Deirdre sits on the EU Transportation Committee and Deirdre has herself lodged a petition saying that Norwegian satisfies the criteria and urging the US to... Let's let's try and be a bit more positive about this for a minute and say that you get over the hurdles. Uh, You know, to to an onlooker, it seems it's very hard for Americans to stop an international agreement, you know. So let's assume it's going to go ahead. What are the benefits to Cork? 
benefits to Cork are Cork has never had transatlantic services. We had some charters back in the 80s. We had Scepter tours, maybe six flights. But in 50-odd, 54 years of operation, we've never had transatlantic services. So when you open up transatlantic services, one of the biggest um, destinations for U.S. visitors is Bunratty Castle, or sorry, Blarney Castle, is the old Hedekin Sale. So they'll be able to fly directly into Cork. They'll go on the Wild Atlantic Way, starting in Kinsale, and they'll go on the New Ireland's Ancient East Trail, which is up through Waterford onto Cashel and right the way up to Newgrange. So American tourists who want to see the real Ireland outside the cities can start in Cork, do a night in Cork, and then go onwards either Ireland's Ancient East or Wild Atlantic Way. One of the things about um, going to Boston mm-hmm. is the great word in in airlines is connectivity. Yeah. And that's why Aer Lingus, for instance, do a deal with um, particularly JetBlue, but, yeah. but also then you get on an Aer Lingus flight and you suddenly have it announced as American Airlines Flight 4158 or whatever it happens to be. Norwegian yeah. um, won't have connectivity. Norwegian have an order in for 149 aircraft. And so that's going to give them a very large fleet. They have the order in through Norwegian Air International Limited, which is the company that's applying for this license, which is based in Dublin, based in Ireland. Uh, and so that's going to give them large expansion. That It's not just the Cork-Boston route. It's then the Cork-New York route, but it's many more routes from other airports into the US. So the license isn't for a Cork route. The Cork is just the precursor to a large number of routes. The license for a company that can operate from throughout the EU into throughout the US. So this is, a, in a sense, this is a beachhead for a large scale. This is a stocking expansion. horse for a big deal. This is a stocking horse for a big deal from a low cost operator. So the unions and their political sponsors wouldn't put this much effort into blocking one route. But they see this route as being a, a change in the way transatlantic oh, yeah. services are going to be operated. Oh. And, and just to come back earlier, yeah. um, low cost carriers on the transatlantic carrier only command 3% of the market at the minute. So it is very much dominated by full service, high fares carriers. And Norwegian have undertaken they will be the cheapest or amongst the cheapest on the transatlantic corridor. So that's why it's a big deal. Have you had so you what? We'll we'll get to America for under two hundred bucks? Uh, I don't want to speculate, but they, they will be there will be headlines. <laughs> well, they'll fair, have headline fares from cheap. Cork. Headline <laughs> fares from Cork, George. <laughs> All right. I, there you have it. Uh, the managing director of Cork Airport, Neil McCarthy. Your thoughts as always to uh, five three one oh six cost thirty cent.